Phoenix Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing the FDA approving the first virtual reality pain treatment and BioVector building the first mRNA vaccine manufacturing plant in Canada. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at XTalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Mira Nabolsi. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start us off with a story about a new virtual reality-based pain therapy um, that recently received de novo clearance or approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration this week. Um, And the system is called EaseVRX, and it's been developed by a company called Applied VR. Now, this virtual reality-based system has become the very first virtual reality pain treatment for chronic pain. Um, And so the system is indicated for the treatment of specifically lower back pain. And the system is an at-home device, and it's based on immersive virtual reality. Um, And so Applied VR is a company that's focused on pioneering the next generation of immersive therapeutics for chronic pain. And before the FDA approval last week, the company had received breakthrough device designation for EaseVRX in 2020. Now, immersive techniques or technologies use artificial or simulated environments to immerse users in their learning. This specific device is a non-invasive prescription use virtual reality pain system that uses cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and other behavioral approaches to assist patients in um, achieving relief for their back pain. The device contains preloaded software content on a proprietary hardware platform, and this delivers automated behavioral skills content uh, as part of the treatment strategy. And this content includes things like exercises, games, and lessons that are specifically designed to reduce pain. And it does so through through approaches that involve training and breathing, mindfulness exercises, Uh, biopsychosocial pain education, relaxation exercises, and executive functioning games. Now, the way this device is designed is that the software is loaded onto a virtual reality headset, and it's used by patients in sessions that range from between 2 to 16 minutes in length, depending on what the healthcare provider deems to be appropriate for uh, the treatment plan. The, as I mentioned, the, this virtual reality pain treatment system is self-administered and it can be design, it's designed to be used at home. And the typical treatment program involves uh, using it for seven days a week for eight weeks. Now, chronic lower back pain I mentioned and talked about in the article um, 
is a huge burden on healthcare when combined with neck pain treatments. In the U.S., it costs almost $77 billion to private insurers, $45 billion to public insurance, and $12 billion in out-of-pocket costs uh, for patients. And a study from Johns Hopkins uh, a couple of years ago uh, suggested that Together, chronic pain can cost as much as $635 billion annually, which is more than the annual costs of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer treatments combined. So chronic lower back pain is characterized by moderate to severe pain in the lower back that lasts longer than three months. And it's one of the most common types of chronic pain conditions in the U.S. and worldwide. Uh, recent evidence shows that virtual reality is an effective tool for pain treatment and specifically for treating chronic pain. A study from Cedars-Sinai's Health Service Research recently showed that virtual reality could alleviate pain in hospitalized uh, patients. It can also be used to treat things like stress and depression. Going back to the Ease VRX system from Applied VR, uh, the system includes, as I mentioned, a VR headset, a controller, as well as a breathing amplifier, which is attached to the headset. And that channels the user's breath towards the microphone on the headset um, to initiate and to guide deep breathing exercises. So, uh, of course, chronic pain has significant negative impacts on mobility, daily activities, and, and overall quality of life. And so, this device was assessed in clinical trials, um, and that was provided as evidence to the FDA. Uh, the data, I'm sorry, was provided to the FDA, and the approval was based on uh, those results. So the device was evaluated in two randomized control trials that evaluated the efficacy of the vir virtual reality-based system. Both studies showed that the virtual reality pain treatment program improved multiple chronic pain outcomes. The first study showed that individuals that had chronic lower back pain or fibromyalgia pain um, experienced improvements in their symptoms with significant reductions in a couple of key pain indicators. And these were defined um, by a threshold of significance of at least 30% for each category. So a threshold of significance of uh, that percentage was deemed to be a significant um, improvement. The second trial also evaluated the safety and efficacy of EaseVRX over a period of eight weeks, and that study showed that patients reported significant improvements after treatment, which included a 42% reduction in pain intensity, as well as reductions in pain-related interferences in activity. Uh, for example, there was a 52% reduction in interferences with uh, sleep, 56% um, reduction in mood interferences, as well as a 57% reduction in stress. So the system is already being used, um, or applied VR and its applications are already being used across hundreds of health systems around the world. And uh, applied VR says that it will continue to test its Ease VRX system to demonstrate, again, both its clinical efficacy and cost effectiveness to treat pain. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this new virtual reality-based um, pain treatment and if, if you've ever heard of uh, anything along these lines before to treat pain. 
So I was going to say, actually, when you were talking about the story, I'm like, it's so funny how um, these kind of technologies that had such bad connotation as to being distracted <laughs> from reality and all this kind of stuff is being used to treat people, which is really awesome to see. But no, I haven't heard anything that applies virtual reality with, with pain. That's, I, I think that's really innovative, firstly. And second, I'd love to see it. Uh, do you know if they like show any sort of, you know, videos and things like that that would show? Yeah. Absolutely. I was going to include some images, some screenshots uh, in the article, which is a great idea for reminding me to do that. But yeah, it's basically akin to kind of a video game in a game. And I don't know if you guys remember the article, I, uh, the story I covered yeah. about, right, the use of uh, specially designed video games to, to treat ADHD in kids. So it's really sort of along the same lines where you're using these principles of cognitive uh, and per based sort of behavioral uh, therapies and integrating that um, in these kinds of treatments based on, you know, the way they design the imagery and, you know, the sorts of, sorts of exercises that are involved in the programs. So it kind of reminded me of that. And I can definitely uh, add sort of those um, images and what it kind of looks like, but it's, it's pretty cool. It does kind of look like you're, you know, in a field, let's say, and you have all of these different colors. So it's very vibrant imagery and really perception based. Yeah. I also have never heard of VR for um, chronic pain specifically, um, but I know it was just approved. So I don't think that it's been, you know, at all rolled out yet, but I have a feeling that it's probably going to be on the expensive side um, did it talk mm. about pricing at all? No, with a lot of these things, um, again, they did not talk about the pricing or the cost of it. But again, they do say that chronic pain, as I mentioned, is very costly to treat in general with traditional uh, uh, routes or th traditional approaches, which are mainly things like uh, medications or if you're talking about cognitive ther behavioral therapies. So, um, I think they are aiming to provide sort of or offer, you know, an alternative and a therapeutic that might be able to address those cost issues because they did talk about that. So hopefully it won't be, you know, exorbitant, but we'll, we'll see. But they did not mention exactly what the costs would look like. Sorry, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but I just have a question. So will this be used in hospitals or will patients be able to do this at home? Patients can do this at home. So oh, it's, an ad, awesome. it's designed to be used at home. Um, I'm pretty sure it can be used in other settings as well um, if patients may require the assistance of a healthcare provider, for example. But it's designed to be an at-home, self-administered system. Oh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like this is just one of many of those decentralized, uh, you know, mm. either trials or treatments that have sort of spawned from the pandemic and, and making it mm. easier for patients to access uh, healthcare. So not sure if um, this was in the works before COVID, but it definitely seems like something inspired by people staying at home um, and making a treatment easier for them, especially given the fact that you mentioned that you have to do it seven days a week for eight weeks. So it's a pretty, it seems pretty intensive. Now, I'm not sure how many, uh, how many minutes a day that it is, but um, it seems like a pretty, um, you know, you got to commit to this if you want to get the most out of it. 
Right. It doesn't seem too burdensome because um, they said that the sessions can last anywhere from two to 16 minutes. Okay. Not too bad. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be um, too much of a burden, but yes, it does seem to be a pretty intensive program. Um, And I'm pretty sure it would be customized to to, to patients in, in some ways, depending on you know, what types of programs are, are in the system and the lengths, of course, of each session and things like that. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. We're seeing, we've seen so many of these at-home self-administered type of devices over the last year, and it could be something that's been spawned by the pandemic for sure. Um, just realizing um, to, to ease the burden off the patient and to, to really help in their journey um, and to offer also non-invasive treatments because as we know things like pain medications uh, um, you know you have issues with addiction and and dependence uh, so that's also an issue that this could combat. Yeah I was gonna say I feel like something like this has a big um, um, what's the word appeal because Mm -hmm. you know not only is it according to these percentages not only is it just helping you reduce your chronic pain but it's helping you with your activity your sleep your mood your stress so it's like helping a lot of things without having to use drugs and I think more and more people are becoming aware of the you know side effects of drugs and things like that so I think using these technologies that already exist around us and making them multi-use is very very um awesome by medtech companies i think yeah absolutely i think this is a i wasn't aware that this is a pretty you know it's a growing field um using virtual reality for pain relief there are a couple of other companies that i mentioned in the article that are also working on similar devices and treatments uh, treatment approaches so it'll be interesting to see uh how things go moving forward. You know, and, I wonder I wonder if it's more appealing to an older audience or a younger one. Mm. Yeah, because in the picture that you have in the article that I just saw, it's an older lady wearing the um, uh, VR device. So I wonder if older people are like, you know, this is a fun way to help my pain. Or is it like the younger people looking to try other ways to improve their health I don't know I think it could be both because although the picture shows uh, an older woman if you take a look at the actual software and the content it's very youthful I would say it's oh, very really? vibrant and it's, so I think it would appeal to all all ages and I think you know if for anyone suffering from any type of chronic pain um, this is specifically indicated for lower back pain because I think this is um what they studied in the trials, but I'm pretty sure it could be extrapolated to other chronic pain conditions. But I think anyone suffering from chronic pain um, on the lookout for alternative treatments and better treatments would definitely give it a try, regardless of age, I would say. All right, so let's move on to the next story that we have here. Uh, talking more about COVID-19 vaccines, as we always uh, like to do on the show. Uh, I'd like to talk about a Canadian pharma and biotech CDMO uh, named BioVectra, which has announced that it's going to build one of the first state-of-the-art mRNA vaccine and biomanufacturing facilities in Canada. 
And so the project is almost an $80 million endeavor, and it's received funding so far from the province of Prince Edward Island, which is in eastern Canada, where the facility will be built, um, as well as the Canadian federal government. So the province of PEI has offered to pitch in $10 million for the project, and the federal government is pledging $39.8 million. And now this investment will go towards expanding BioVectra's existing production facility in Charlottetown, which is the capital of PEI. So this, is, uh, this expansion is going to include a new 30,000 square foot building, and that's going to be able to produce mRNA vaccines. The company says that they'll be able to produce about 160 million doses of mRNA vaccines annually and up to 70 million doses of prepared and packaged fill-finished uh, doses for commercial distribution uh, every year. The company says that the new manufacturing plant will begin construction in March of 2022, and then production is expected to begin at the facility a year after that. Now, as we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, um, globally, countries, we've all been relying on just a handful of vaccine manufacturing facilities. Um, and of course, that has led to shortages and also uh, global inequities in vaccine distribution as well. And so a lot of countries have realized the need for large-scale domestic biomanufacturing facilities for drugs and vaccines so that they can be prepared for potential health emergencies in the future. Now, BioVectra isn't exactly new to the field of biomanufacturing. It's been around for several decades in Canada. And the CEO of the company said that, uh, as such, the, the CDMO is well positioned to um, move, make the next step and uh, get into producing mRNA therapeutics for Canada. Um, it says that it, as a leading Canadian CDMO with more than 50 years of expertise, uh, they have a proven record of pushing the boundaries of our capabilities to meet global customers' uh, challenges. Also, the Canadian government acknowledged their uh, shortcomings in the life sciences and R&D biomanufacturing across the board during the pandemic. Um, and so uh, Canada, as with a lot of other countries, were also dependent on other um, nations, um, namely the U.S. and Germany, BioNTech, which developed, co-developed the Pfizer vaccine for production of uh, vaccine doses for COVID-19. And to be prepared, this is part of Canada's national efforts to really um, boost up their biomanufacturing and their life sciences R&D programs. So as part of efforts to address the gap between uh, COVID-19 vaccines um, and uh, distribution, the Canadian government has also provided $173 million in funding to a biotech company based in Montreal, Quebec, which is working to develop a plant-based COVID-19 vaccine in partnership with uh, GSK. The company uh, Medicago um, currently has its vaccine candidate in phase uh, three trials, and recently it released results of phase two trials uh, showing that its vaccine 
um, demonstrates good efficacy and a good safety profile. In addition to Medicago, Canada also has plans to manufacture its own doses of the highly anticipated uh, Novavax COVID-19 vaccine at the National Research Council of Canada's Biologics Manufacturing Centre in Montreal, pending authorization of that vaccine. And so once that uh, facility is up and running, uh, the government says that the, the uh, production house could produce up to 24 million doses of vaccine per year. And so far, Novavax's vaccine has only been authorized for emergency use in Indonesia and the Philippines. And the company completed a rolling submission to Health Canada to seek approval for the vaccine in Canada. Um, so, of course, you know, people might say, well, why do we need you know, these manufacturing facilities now specifically for the COVID-19 vaccines. Well, the thing is that um, there was a lot of talk about boosters going around, right? Since uh, there are issues of waning immunity to consider and uh, COVID isn't gone yet. We still have case numbers increasing around the world. And so this is prompting health regulators to, number one, uh, recommend boosters and then also for governments to pay more heed to their manufacturing capabilities and also to prepare for future disease outbreaks and health emergencies, as I mentioned. So just wanted to get your thoughts on this domestic uh, production facility and biomanufacturing in general. I think Canada, like with a lot of other countries, like I mentioned, we've been lagging behind in drug and large scale drug and vaccine manufacturing. Well, one thing that stuck out to me that you mentioned was uh, the plant-based vaccine it, it got mm. like then I started thinking are the mainstream vaccines not plant-based so they I mean none of the vaccines contain any animal products but the way that traditional vaccines are made is that you have to first expand out or grow out large amounts of virus using a host cell and usually those cells are uh, animal cells or human cells. For example, uh, chicken embryonic cells were traditionally used um, for that purpose. Uh, for mRNA vaccines, however, you don't need to grow out large amounts of virus at all because the mRNA is essentially synthesized. You just need to expand out the virus a bit initially uh, for the sequencing and, and testing and things like that. Uh, for this plant-based vaccine, however, however, this is not an mRNA vaccine, so it's more of a traditional vaccine and therefore you do require growing out large amounts of virus. And instead of using animal cells, they're using plant cells. And I believe they're using a type of a weed that's related to a tobacco plant. That's really interesting. I knew that would uh, catch your attention. Yeah, it's the food writer, you know. Um, <laughs> I never, um, I never even heard of anyone making that distinction before. So it's really cool that you brought it up. Um, but in terms of manufacturing, I would say we're in in Canada. I would say we're very lucky that we. Um, have the resources and the opportunity to be able to do this. Um, and hopefully we, um, you know, are more generous and are able to share what we produce with the rest of the world who needs it too. Because at this point in the pandemic, I would say Canada has a relatively good handle um, on cases. They're st they still are increasing, as you, as yeah. you mentioned, but we do have a good amount of people vaccinated and with boosters coming up as well. I know we're going to still need more vaccines, but um, yeah, I would just hope that we um, 
we're generous and we distribute what we produce to countries that need it the most. Yeah, I think I think it's so late to the game though. Like it's now, you know, the pandemic's been around for so long. But yeah, like you said, Sydney, I guess like the idea of distribution to other countries that are still struggling because reality is a lot of countries in the world are not doing so well with the with the pandemic. So definitely in that sense that's great. But um I wonder how that will work in the future. Will this be, you know, like a third vaccine that you can mix and match with others, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I guess they'll tackle that once we get there. But um, yeah, that's that's my initial thoughts about all of that. Well, it's not just for COVID-19, right? It's also to for for the future this is planning ahead. And I think we've yeah, you know, globally, we've learned a lot of lessons about um pandemic preparedness or even preparing for epidemics as well since I, I don't think we'll see another pandemic hopefully um within our lifetimes but I think these are just efforts uh geared towards being better prepared for any type of a health emergency um and if we do need to produce drugs or vaccines at large scale and especially with mRNA therapeutics because I think we discussed on this show as well how um, that's another interesting thing, how willing companies may be to share their vaccine recipes, because that's also an issue, right? Um, and and so that'll be interesting to see once countries, let's say, start um, having the capability to produce mRNA-based therapeutics at large scale. Will companies that hold patents over uh, things like COVID-19 vaccines be willing to share their uh, formulas for production? Uh, the other thing is, uh, yeah, we also talked about how mRNA therapeutics are not so simple to produce at mass scale. They're, the technology involved um, is still novel in terms of working out the the things involved in biomanufacturing. And so that also is a consideration. Uh, and I think this is a great step in being prepared and mRNA therapeutics are the next, are part of, you know, are among the next generation of therapeutics. Um, and so I think to have large-scale biomanufacturing facilities dedicated uh, to mRNA-based production, um, I think it's it's a smart move and it's much needed. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. The idea that the mRNA vaccine is becoming so popular nowadays because of the COVID vaccine, we only and we've been hearing so much about different vaccines that want to be developed with this technology, right? So, yeah, I think in an effort to make Canada better for the future, this is definitely needed now. It's better now than later. <laughs> That's for sure. But yeah, you're you're totally right, Aisha. Yeah. And I think, Sydney, you were saying that this would also be great to, to sort of ease the burden off of manu uh, current manufacturers in terms of meeting global demands and, you know, to help ensure more equitable distribution of, of vaccines for COVID-19 right now and potentially for other things in the future. So. Yeah, it's true. Even though I totally agree with you, Mira, it, is, it does feel late in the game. It's such a, it's evolving so unpredictably still that I, I still predict that like it, it will be needed. And even though it, it does feel late, it's like better late than never, I guess. 
better late than never indeed. <laughs> so on that note, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more.